Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome, everyone, to Project Management Office Hours, the number one live project management radio show in the U.S., broadcasting to you today from the Phoenix Business Radio X studio in Tempe, Arizona. I'm your host, Joe Puzz, PMO Joe, and for the next hour, we'll be talking project management with our special guests. I want to take a moment to acknowledge and thank our sponsor, the PMO Squad. They are home of the Purpose Driven PMO. Start with why, before what, and how, and align with executive leadership to ensure success for your project management office. To learn more about the Purpose Driven PMO and all the services from the PMO Squad, visit thepmosquad.com. I also want to talk a little bit about conferences, right? We, we can have so much fun at conferences. They're an opportunity to get away from the office. Uh, but what I found in my own personal experience is that oftentimes there's multiple tracks happening mm-hmm. at the same time. You can only attend one of the sessions. So you miss out on all that great content. So becoming more and more popular, of course, are online conferences. And upcoming to celebrate International Project Management Day on November 7th, IIL is hosting the IPM Day online conference for the 16th consecutive year. And we have over 26 hours of content that they are presenting, of which, of course, you can collect PDUs uh, for that work. There's a great lineup of speakers they have. PMI president uh, will be there. Um, Jay Leroy Ward, Harold Kersner, uh, myself, and Eric Wright will be talking about VPMMA, the Veteran Project Manager Mentoring Alliance. And the key to this, right, of course, is you, if you attend one of these online conferences, you get to get every session. You get to do it from the comfort of your home, and you get to do it over a three-month window, right? The conference runs from November 7th for three uh, for 90 days. And the price for the IIL IPM Day online conference is only $59. So imagine getting all of the content at a cost that's probably 90% cheaper than if you were to attend a conference like this in person. And what's even better for all of our guests out there to listen in, uh, if you use code PMO Squad, you'll get $10 off for attending. And if you're a veteran, we have a fantastic partnership with IIL. They are offering the conference completely free to veterans if you use special code VPMMA. So much thanks to the IIL leadership team and their crew that have worked hard to put together this conference. Uh, And for everybody out there, a great opportunity to go hear from some fantastic speakers, get some great content and be able to assist with your PDUs to help you continue your professional development. So once again, go to IIL.com. You can register today, and the conference starts on November 7th. So let's jump into the show. I'm super excited today to have Carol Osterweil and Bruce Kilborn with us. Thank you both for joining us. It's a real pleasure for me. Thanks for having us. So, Carol, if if you could, please take a moment to introduce yourself. You're joining us from the U.K., so it's always fun to have an international guest with us. Uh, So if you would, take a moment and say hello to the listeners. Tell a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah, okay, so perhaps you'd be most interested to know when I started out in project management, what was, what was I doing? I was an international project leader for about five years before I decided I was fed up with repeating myself too often to the people I was working with. So I went into teaching project and program management at Ashridge Business School, which is here in the UK. Um, and one of the very first clients that I got to work with was a big utility organisation in the public sector who had approached Ashridge for help with project and program management support to, to take them into the private sector. Now, this was something which had never been done in the UK or I think anywhere else before. And with the, my colleagues, who included someone, Professor Eddie O'Bang, who some of you may have heard of, um, we were a set of mavericks, really. And we were all kind of project and program people, but not persuaded by the professional training that was on offer in the sense that we felt that it was far too process-based and we felt that leadership and people were just as important. So we designed our own program for this utility, for the student senior management team, which was around those three things, process, people and leadership. And that's really been the focus of my work ever since. Um, this particular project gave us access to big global organizations and also because we were in a business school a real love of multidisciplinary research and I spent oh I don't know 15 20 years consulting teaching and coaching in that sphere whilst based at Ashridge before leaving and I left because I felt my interest had become more and more about how do we manage through ambiguity and uncertainty and it was time really to start leading projects and doing that rather than just teaching others about it again. So I left to in, join the UK government on the borders, and it sounds very UK specific, which I apologise, the borders of the Department of Health and the NHS. And I won't bore you with the details, except for to say it was an incredible challenge, not always a happy one. Um, and maybe it was a bit of a baptism of a fire, when I was really having to deal firsthand with the reality of what's it like to be delivering projects when the surrounding environment and the policies and processes you're meant to be implementing are changing constantly. And it's that real interest about how on earth do we lead through this kind of uncertainty, which has informed all of my work since. And it's really led me to being here on with you today. Well, thanks, Carly. Appreciate that. And obviously, we'll we'll get into uh, another deliverable that that all led to, and that's the book mm -hmm. that you've authored. So we'll talk about that quite a bit. And thank you so much for joining us and uh, our transatlantic communication, right, from the UK here to Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, fortunate to have Bruce Kilborn here with me in studio. Thank you so much, Bruce, for joining me. If you could take a moment as well and say hello to the guests, introduce them and yourself to them. Excellent. <clears throat> thanks, Joe. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Bruce Kilborn. Um, a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm an Arizona native. Um, uh, graduated from Scottsdale Saguaro High School uh, after uh, the age of 18 and trying to figure out who I was from 18 to 21. Finally joined the Army uh, to, you know, take a leap of faith into what I was, you know, going to be as an adult. Uh, and uh, with that, uh, was exposed to technology. Uh, telecommunications and network infrastructure and had the opportunity through my training with the 101st Airborne to actually put it into uh, actual pr uh, practical use and uh, supported the 101st Airborne in Iraq from February 2003 to February 2004. 
after getting out, uh, continued to pursue my uh, professional career as an IT professional and started working with uh, John C. Lincoln Health Network as a telecommunications specialist. So started out working more in the tactical side, move, add, break, fix type uh, aspect, but had aspirations to move into leadership, continued to go to uh, to college uh, using my GI Bill. Long story short, moved my way up the corporate ranks, ranks with uh, uh, John C. Lincoln to ultimately being the, the director of network infrastructure. Uh, went on to be the chief operating officer for um, uh, a managed services, uh, IT services firm, um, which was a short stint, and then started my own um, IT consulting organization, did that for about three years, and uh, now work uh, as the director of project management for Omnificent Systems, which is a managed service provider. We do everything from uh, managed infrastructure to managed uh, IT services for your service desk operations to project management and consulting services for large-scale infrastructure implementations. That's fantastic. Well, obviously, thank you for your service. We appreciate that. As as I'm sitting here with my VP MMA shirt on, uh, obviously, I always mm-hmm. take a moment to acknowledge the work that veterans have done for us as they served our country, but also to be able to use that as a moment to be able to say uh, VPMMA is a nonprofit organization that works with service members, veterans, and military spouses to help them in their project management careers by providing mentorship, right? As a nonprofit organization, we don't uh, discriminate based on anything, right? If you're a veteran and you're looking for help in the PM space, we're there to help you. So visit www.thevpmma.org. Uh, and you can register to be a mentor. You can register to be a, uh, a protege as a service member. Of course, we love having corporate partners and receiving donations to help us um, push forward on our mission. Also, with that, we've just to show you guests out there that we do listen to the feedback you provide us. We've had guests uh, sent or uh, listeners send in information that they wanted to have some guests who have infrastructure background uh, and hear about project management in that space as well. Uh, because we've not really focused on that to this point. So welcome, Bruce. You're filling the request of guests uh, or uh, from listeners who've written in to us to let us know that. It's awesome. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk some project management. We'll dig in a little bit with the book here first, Carol. I alluded to it uh, after your introduction. The book is titled A Leader's Guide, Project Delivery, Uncertainty, and Neuroscience, A Leader's Guide to Walking in Fog. Um, <laughs> And it's, it's now in my list of favorite books for many reasons. The content is fantastic, but it's also uh, concise and to the point, cover to cover, 45 pages, and you pack in a tremendous amount of content. What was, you know, what was the thoughts behind the book and, and also you know, why something so concise that's to the point? I think it's... Um, Intriguing to get a quality book that's this small but this powerful. No, well, thank you, first of all. I take that as a real compliment. Secondly, you might be thinking that it started out as a book, but it didn't. Yeah, okay. (laughs) So the thinking behind it was over the last, I don't know, five years, if not a bit longer, I've been coaching numerous leaders and project leaders and project directors and project teams. And... The ideas in the book, I've written up in a variety of different blogs. And I got to a point, I'm working on one of the programs that I work on. I work on a program, actually it's another government one. I do do lots of not government work as well, I should say. But I'm working on one program 
for central government, which is um, run by Cranfield University and PA Consulting. And more and more of the people that I'm coaching on that program, I am introducing to the ideas in the book. And I was sending them copies of the, of my various blogs, not all, not a whole package of them, but lots of different ones. And then I got wind that Cranfield were planning to put a book together. So I thought, oh, that'll be a good challenge. I'll, I'll write a chapter for it and synthesize it all. And then once I'd written the chapter, I decided, actually, you know what? This is too good to get hidden in someone else's book, especially as I'm still not sure what the publishing timescales are. So I'll publish it myself. So that, if you like, is the background to the book <laughs> and probably why it's so short. It, it again. I I love the fact that the content gets you where you want to go. That you travel the journey, you just get there quickly, right? Um, and what we've focused a lot on on this show over the past year is the people side of project management more than the technical side. And several good discussions on the brain, right, and understanding how our team members work. And that's that's the focus, right? Is is the neuroscience yeah. behind how we operate as people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's fascinating. And I'm smiling as I'm talking to you. And you've said that to me, because the very first book that I got about the brain, I actually bought in Tempe. How's that? Oh, wow. <laughs> Look at that. The connection. Used, I can't remember the bookshop, but it used to be on the corner of Millen University, because my dad used to live down the road when he was alive. <laughs> we're, we're not too far from there right now. Just a couple of miles away. <laughs> so it's not funny. So, yeah, so, yes, the human brain. And my own view is, since I've got to know more about it, is it starts to explain just so much of what goes on in projects and stuff which is, I don't know, it's always, I think, for many project leaders, many program leaders as well, and project managers, it's stuff which people stuff can be a bit scary, especially as their professional training doesn't typically prepare them for it. Does that resonate for you guys? Uh, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, and, and to even take it to another level, I mean, if you don't possess effective communication or interpersonal skills in any situation, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to be successful. So I, I think the, the topics that you hit on in this this publication is incredible. I think it, it applies to so many different verticals or areas of operations. Um, obviously, we're focusing on projects, project management, and I, I see intrinsically how it, it, it affects productivity and the, the quality of what's ultimately delivered in every project. So it's all really interesting stuff. You know, and as we think about that, and, and to your point, Bruce, let's, let's bring that to a project management discussion, right? There's certain elements that we see repeatedly over successful projects and failed projects, right? What are some of those keys that you've observed and how many of them are that interpersonal nature and that people side versus how many are on the technical side? I think it's an excellent question. I mean, the, you know, the framework at, at the beginning, you know, from building out, you know, from uh, initiation to planning and then ultimately execution. I mean, you can build the most rigid and clearly defined process, but if you don't have the resources that have the skill sets and communication styles to effectively communicate as a team and execute in concert, it, it's not going to be a successful project. So I think they both play hand in hand. Yeah, I, I, I picture... Again, as people who listen know, I love sports, right? So everything to me comes back to a sports analogy. And there are certain teams out there today playing in Major League Baseball playoffs that you know, last night's game are two teams that had, you know, low, low payrolls. They didn't have the best players on their team, but they made the playoffs. 
and the Boston Red Sox, my tear in my eyes says I'm a fan of theirs, had the highest payroll because they supposedly had the best players and they didn't make the playoffs. And part of that was the coach's ability to get the team to work together to perform better. And, and projects are no different, right? If we if we have project managers that are leading that team, they can be successful even if they're not the best team out there. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's a combination of the two. I don't think you can have well, – I mean, I guess you could get lucky and you could have one or the sure. other and you could still be successful. But, I mean, to truly have a healthy environment and guarantee success for at least to the best of your ability – I, I think the, the two need to act in concert, effective communication, effective skill sets, leadership styles, and then a clearly defined process that can be monitored and measured. So let's let's dig now and, and tie that back to Carol's book, right? So Carol, in the book, how do we look at what the ba- how the brain works and then tie that into the ability to, to talk about communication and working with teammates? Okay. Okay, my starting point, I think, is to say, just think about any projects you've you've worked on. Yeah, typically, what happens is everything is all fine until suddenly it's not, and it's that there's so much stuff goes on underneath the surface that we're not aware of. And I wrote the book partly to help people understand that these dynamics do exist, and we need to make them more visible. And when we start talking about the human brain, then. I think everybody understands the notion of the fight and flight thing, yeah? Sure. Be well aware of that. That's nothing new. Yeah. The thing that I think is so different is we usually associate fight and flight with stuff to do with physical threat, yeah? Whether it's a fire or a car coming fast towards us or the tiger in the jungle when people are talking back to our ancestors, it's physical threat. And I think what we don't really appreciate sufficiently is the human brain does not distinguish at all between physical threat and social threat. And when I say social threat, just think about the people that you work with and how often just occasionally something happens. You might be fearful or a bit embarrassed about saying something or that someone might be really angry at you and that evokes some kind of response in you. These kind of threats exist all of the time and they dictate how we behave and why we respond as we do. But in the world of projects and the world of organisations, we pay no attention to that whatsoever. We pretend that emotions don't exist at all. And in writing the book, what I was trying to get people to understand is there are simple, quite simple models for understanding how the brain works. And if only we can recognize that sometimes if our rational brain, our thinking brain, is just taken offline because that's the way our brain works. If we can start to recognize when that's happening to us and when we're then evoking a threat or avoidance response in other people, then we can start to do something about it. Because if I'm talking to you really fast or really loud, Or I'm reminding you, this is an interesting one, of a teacher you used to have at school when you were a kid, or your dad when he was in a bad mood, or the last program director who called, bawled you out for not doing what you should have done at a particular review meeting. If I remind you of that, then you will not be able to respond really well to whatever it is I'm asking you to do. But when we design how projects work, we never think about what emotional responses might be evoked in other people. And in writing the book, I was trying to get people to start thinking about that. What's going on for me now? 
what's going on for other people and what do we need to do or what do I need to do to help other people and myself think clearly? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think that first identifying, you know, what is the root cause that's causing people to either disconnect or not produce or, you know, whatever the the particular issue that's been identified, um, I think is key. Uh, with, with that being said, I'd say like in, in every project, you know, the, the key first is having so fully de- uh, first clearly defining the, the scope of what it is that you're going to achieve, what the roles and responsibilities are, your overall timeline, et cetera, et cetera. And then ultimately uh, it norms for communication within an organization. And then above and beyond that, uh, the m- members of the team that are monitoring and measuring the, the progress and success of the project throughout the life cycle and iteratively. Um, ultimately, as issues are identified, then I think in order to ensure success is that uh, a successful project manager sees that there may be communication breakdowns or lack of productivity. And then that dovetails back into what you're describing where, you know, the root cause may be uh, emotional distress, interpersonal issues, um, things of that nature, which, I, again, I find fashion, fascinating the study that you've done where, you know, looking into the, the dynamics of how the psychological or neurological uh, behavior of an individual impacts mm-hmm. the success or failure of a project. Yeah, I think that's really, really bang on. But I think even more than that, there's a need to sit there and think not only what is going on out there, what do I observe happening in the team and so on, but also thinking about and how am I contributing to this? And I don't think most of our training prepares us to think about how am I contributing to it. So if I am really stressed at this moment, my stress, especially if I'm in a leadership position, will have an impact on those around me, for example. Taking out of the project management context for a minute is when we go out to eat with uh, my uh, brother and his wife, if we get poor service, my sister-in-law has no issue telling the wait staff that they didn't perform the way they needed to. And that's not my strong suit. I'm generally laid back and, and, and don't say anything. <laughs> then when we go out to dinner without my brother and sister-in-law, and it's just my wife and I, who the team dynamics are now different and who's going to be the responsible party to step up and say the service wasn't what expected. Is that going to be me or my wife? But that's not my comfort zone. So understanding the context, as you described, right, and Bruce, the different projects and the different situations, the team from project to project changes. And the behaviors and the context change and how do we react to that and understand and be aware of our surroundings to work through that? Uh, in my, my personal opinion, I think the, the, the key to success is having, you know, first having the forethought to describe exactly what you're thinking, you know, that there is going to be potential issues that are going to arise and then how are you going to handle them throughout the life cycle of the project? So ultimately, you know, what what is your your issue management and risk tracking process throughout the project. Um, how do you identify it? And then what are your mitigation strategies around it? So, I mean, just so long as you at least establish a, a method and a cadence, I think you at least have a fighting chance. Yeah. And, and, and again, we'll take the context. Again, we're so supportive of, of veterans with our VPMMA or nonprofit. But you in the military, at 101st Airborne, you, were, you said at the beginning, you were running projects in the military, Right. 
the context completely different than corporate America, though, where there were orders in one and motivation in the other. Sure. So how do you take, as Carol's describing this, because fight or flight in the military is certainly different than fight or flight when you're looking at network infrastructure. I, I think the the key to success in, in that particular scenario, like you're describing, like in the military, it's, it's sink or swim. Failure is not an option. And either you do your job or you don't. And if you don't do your job, someone could eff- effectively die or be injured. Um, in, in corporate America, you do have the – I mean, and that was one of the biggest issues that I had transitioning from the military to corporate America at first is that I just expected those that reported to me to do what was expected of them and then to hold themselves accountable if they didn't. That's not the reality. <laughs> so uh, the, the the reality is, is that I, I think that to ensure that you don't end up into those high-stress situations where people become disengaged is that through collaboration and interactive or interaction with the team – for example, building out the, the detailed work breakdown structure or task list of a particular project. After the project has been scoped by a particular sales team, if you will, or identified and chosen to move forward by an executive team, a part of that process, even before you get there, there should be members of your infrastructure, the individuals that are actually going to be doing the work. They need to be consulted and feedback solicited from them so that they can then help with the planning and then execution of the project. All too often what I've seen is that um, without effective governance within a project or within an enterprise, projects are often selected, solutions are selected, and then shoved down the throat of an IT support team. The IT support team, even though its service is inherent within their role and what they do, they still feel disgruntled. Well, why wasn't I asked about this? Well, didn't they know about X, Y, and Z impacts that by choosing the solution it's going to have into the, the enterprise? They, these individuals, same individuals, may not have a big picture of why the solution was chosen for the organization. So you've got that disconnect and understanding the big picture, dissension between the the the, the you know, the individuals doing the work and the individuals who make, make the decisions. So to, to mitigate that by involving the team and allowing them to solicit and, and provide feedback, I think is, is a step in the right direction. I don't know if it completely mitigates the, <laughs> what we're discussing. But. Well, and I, you know, that makes me think in your book, Carol, you talk about painting by numbers and walking in fog, right? Mm-hmm. And I think they both fit what Bruce was just describing there, right? So, and I, but I think what's so interesting is, so if you're in that world there, Bruce, when people are not involving the teams in any way, there's a kind of assumption about this is just going to be like painting by numbers. <laughs> you know, we're going to set, set out a very, very clear outline and all we want the project team to do is do that little piece of work which turns it green or puts a flower in where we've drawn it. But, you know, life's not like that, is it? No, unfortunately not. One of the things that we find more and more is that in modern projects, in the IT world, infrastructure, whether it's IT, construction, whatever, we're working on the edges of what people know often. And certainly we're involving lots of different people, often virtually, often across the globe. So there's endless layers of complexity which go there. And what one person is very clear about might be totally unclear to somebody else, or we're not quite speaking the same language. And all those assumptions about this is going to be just like painting by numbers, well, really, I would argue we're better off being far more explicit about what's not clear 
and working very hard to specify out what are we clear about, what are we not clear about. And more often than not, for at least some of the people involved, there is a real sense that they are literally walking in fog, sometimes really stuck, sometimes they're very frustrated. The way ahead is not always at all clear, but if they're operating in a world where everyone's expecting it to be painting by numbers, it doesn't always feel safe to say, oh, my God, this is really, 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 really difficult. I think yeah, so there's something about using those two metaphors, which can really facilitate a conversation about how people feel as well as where are things more complex. And in the book, I talk about when we're walking in fog, what do we need to do? We need to start just putting one small stake in the ground and then thinking about what do we need to learn here to clarify what is clear and what isn't. And then we put the next stake in. So we're taking tentative steps one after another, always with the intention of moving towards painting by numbers. And it, in my experience, using those metaphors frees up all kinds of conversations, which otherwise can be absolutely impossible. Sure. So have either of you ever been caught in the fog? Yeah. Oftentimes <laughs> the fog is following me around. Uh, <laughs> and. Again, the connections to the military, right? There's a, a right there, a common term, the fog of war, right? It's the same thing. It's the uncertainty of the situation and how to react to that. And the connection to projects is, is there as well because, you know, around the corner is the employee that gets sick and they're out for a day and we're behind and how do we tell the customer? And the boss doesn't want us to tell the customer and the stresses get played in and now all of a sudden you're in the fog. Sure. Yeah, and it's interesting. And you said, and the stresses play in. And then, of course, as the stresses play in, social threat plays in as well. Absolutely. And suddenly people are feeling threatened by that in some way. And then when we're threatened, as I talk about in the book, we're not able to think nearly so clearly. And then things start getting more complex. Behaviours can kind of change and shift. Um, now we don't necessarily trust the people we're meant to be trusting and collaboration gets more difficult and it can take us into something that I describe as the project stress cycle, which is a whole nother story. <laughs> well, obviously, in stresses are obviously inherent within the project, but we get stresses even before projects start, yes. right? If we're talking project governance and how we even identify which projects to work on, I mean, Bruce, how do you deal with that but it right it's the pre-project stress it's the portfolio stress how, how do you handle that what i've seen before organizations ever even start to go down that path you typically have to fail more times than not and then the the tough decision comes that okay well we need to define or build a formal governance process before we choose solutions and burden our staff with ultimately trying to to implement this new solution uh an example would be you know i i've, I've worked a lot in the healthcare vertical and in, in the healthcare space in particular, um, when you get into like the family practice side, doctors in general run their own clinic and will choose their own platform or tool that they'll use for tracking electronic medical record data. Uh, oftentimes as a healthcare organization, they'll want to standardize in a particular platform, whether that's Epic, McKesson or what have you. Um, there's benefits in standardizing on a platform to standardize data and integration, et cetera, right? So, but what ends up happening is that a particular physician may choose a solution because this is what he likes and he doesn't care that the organization is standardized on these particular, uh, a platform. 
and a decision may be made as an enterprise, you know what, we're just going to go ahead and do a one-off for this particular individual, and it spirals, and it continues on to multiple other clinics. Meanwhile, you've got your support staff that are doing the move, add, change, break, fix support for these clinics across the board. Now we have non-standard deployments. Resource requirements continue to expand, and they are now overwhelmed. We continue to add on additional projects, and at some point, people just feel that they're not being listened to, that the the, the clients that they're supporting don't feel that the level of support is meeting their needs, so they just feel beat down. And then you end up in that stressful state, which I would say is that fog that Carol's alluding to. So, I mean, I think the, the most important part is, is that finally once organizations identify that it is important to fully vet and evaluate solutions before choosing to issue a PO and then ultimately using your resources whether that's technical or operational, because everybody needs to be involved for a successful project. I mean, technology doesn't drive the business. Business drives the business. Technology enables the business. So I think that's the most important part. First, identifying how to evaluate solutions, clearly understand the solutions that you have in place, what are the dependencies and requirements of said solution that you choose, and then making sure that everybody's on the same page on how we're going to get from point A to point B. What's the cost? What's the timeline? And who's doing what, when, and where? So you know, as we think through that, we're, we're trying to create a, a safety zone, right? It's, it's the more repeatable and consistent we can behave, the more comfortable and confident we are in the success we'll have. And in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, we're, we're like trying to hit safety, right? I mean, we're trying to get to that point of where I know where I'm supposed to be and I belong there. And, and Carol, how does that, how have you <laughs> kind of addressed that too, right? Is there a is that the way the brain works or am I trying to overthink this and trying to go too deep on that? No, I think you speak about safety and it was really interesting right at the start of this conversation, Bruce, you mentioned mitigation strategies and the thought that came into my mind was something around the, the term of psychological safety and the extent to which we even recognize that this exists so maybe would it be helpful if i just talk a little bit about what psychological safety is yeah yeah okay so i don't know about you maybe i'm about to tell you a very uk based story do you remember being a kid at what would be high school in the states unfortunately and you're standing yeah. <laughs> in your classmates and they are selecting people for the sports team and you're waiting for your name to be called do you remember that feeling oh god they're never going to call me yeah, unfortunately, I was usually the one picking the players, but yes. <laughs> oh, okay. You were, the, you were the lucky ones picking the players. For me, it was always, is my name going to come up? And that's a kind of a dreadful feeling of anticipation and dread and potential humiliation, which goes with that, I think. And that, for me, reflects that unconscious need we all have, but we don't often talk about, which is about the need to belong to the group. And one of the things that's so, so interesting is a piece of research that was done by Google, I don't know, three, four years ago, something called Project Aristotle. Google were trying to research what made their most effective project team so effective. So I think they looked at about 180 teams, so about 250, can you imagine that in the matrix, 250 variables, what makes these teams totally the most successful? And they concluded, surprised to themselves, and I think possibly to some of your listeners, that the thing that made project teams really successful was when there was something called psychological safety, by which they, by which they mean every single individual within the team would feel safe to speak out and speak to the tr- about the truth as they saw it. 
without any fear of being embarrassed, mocked, humiliated, kind of ostracized secretly from the team and cast out, as it were. So this notion of psychological safety, whenever we're working with groups and with teams, is really important. And it's about what behavioral, behavioral norms we establish to make sure people feel safe to speak the truth. And what I find interesting and, and slightly fascinating about that research uh, result is that's not in PMI's PMBOK in any chapter I recall. That's not in any PMP prep course I've ever heard or attended. It's not out there, right? So as project managers, how do we know that? How do we learn? How do we train? How do we prove our teams unless we get access to that data and that research? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I'm telling you about it now. Yeah, that's why I have the show. Yes, thank you. The bell is ringing. And I'm hoping, I'm, I'm working really hard to try to get people to understand, to recognize it. Because when we see it, the case is so compelling. You're not wanting to argue with it, as you hear me tell it, are you? Well, no, because we've all, whether I was the person picking the team or the person being picked, we were all in that situation and to be honest, through social media and others, I've had high school uh, mates of mine come to me years later. And actually, they were the ones that were getting picked last and talked to me and told me how uncomfortable that made them feel. Absolutely. And I'm not aware of that as a 16 to 18-year-old boy. right? I'm not aware of that. But now as an adult, I'm aware of it to the point where I can teach my children based on that experience. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the other thing that goes with that is – so as I'm talking about it to you, I'm hearing you say, yeah, no, that kind of emotional thing resonates, what it feels like. And when we're working on projects or anywhere in organizations, we, I still believe we pretend emotions don't exist, but they're there all of the time. In writing the book, what I wanted to do was to provide a way for people to kind of go, yeah, no, this is part of life and it's nothing to be embarrassed or ashamed of. And let's build in and not pretend they don't exist anymore. And let's just make it accessible for us to talk about what's going on. So if we come back to so psychological safety, if I don't feel safe, I am unable to collaborate properly. I'm unable to learn properly. I'm unable to be creative. And I'm, my productivity and the productivity of the group that I'm with will be automatically reduced. And so in the book, I talk a bit about how the brain works so that we can understand what's going on for me that allows me to, in inverted commas, I'm waving my hands here, you can't see it, in inverted commas, (laughs) keep my thinking brain online so that I can be aware of how I'm feeling and how everyone else that I'm working with is feeling and be ensuring that I'm creating this psychologically safe space. Because if I can keep my thinking brain online, I can keep theirs online, and then we will reduce the number of Invisible dynamics, bad communications, misapprehensions, all that stuff that goes on underneath the surface, which gets in the way of doing the work. So I think that's well said. Go on. Uh, Sorry, Carol. I I think that's well said. I mean, an example of uh, where I've experienced this and before ever even, you know, the concepts that are, you know, articulated in your book. But working uh, previously, when I was first working my way up the ranks and at at John C. Lincoln, a a new uh, director um, over the infrastructure team, 
and we were uh, undergoing a electronic medical record implementation. Uh, so the, un- the, the undertaking inherent within that project was everything from building out a new 10,000-square-foot data center, overhauling the entire wireless infrastructure, all new virtual infrastructure, basically everything from core to edge completely replaced and all endpoints. So, I mean, it was a huge undertaking uh, which should have taken probably close to, we'll say, two to three years from cradle to grave. We ultimately ended up building out a project plan and completing all all requirements within about an 18-month period. So, I mean, it was a lot of very tough work. But in order to even get there, because just like you're describing, the 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 uncertainty, the uncomfortableness, um, the lack of productivity or quality that was being delivered on projects as a whole – Uh, What we ended up doing is developing a standard project management methodology. So we took a little bit from, you know, say ITIL, from from PMBOK, a little bit from COBIT across the board and just built basically our own process and, you know, roles and responsibilities. And then from building that out, then trained uh, all of our IT support staff and then key leaders across the business units as well as far as what our methodology was, what the communication norms were, how we were going to execute on this very complex and huge project plan. It was really more as a program. So ultimately, by, by rolling that out, it didn't make everything perfect, but it, it helped communication, helped, I think, ease the nerves of the individuals who are going to be executing upon the work and, executing the work, and then ultimately helped us you know, be successful in the project. Yeah, no, that's a great illustration. And I'm guessing even though you haven't spelt it out, there was also something about the way people were leading, which made it safer. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because, I mean, and I think that's something that's really important that from an organizational perspective, it needs to come from the top down. Leaders need to lead by example, not the do what I say, not what I do mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all too often I have seen that in the past where, you know, we've set a standard and certain leaders choose to follow a separate or disparate standard and it causes dissension and there isn't consistency across the board. Those individuals either, either end up conforming or moving out. That's, that's the reality. You know, and on the show, you know, I want to toot our own horn here for a minute because I think what we're trying to do with the show you talked to a little bit earlier, Carol, right? We've had Ruth Pearson, who, who's mm-hmm. talked about this a little bit as well. Steve Fulmer has been on. We have Barbara Troutline coming on later this year. We're trying to bring to the listeners guests such as yourself that are talking about us uh, project management in a way that isn't in the air quotes here textbook, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's we're managing people. Sure, there is an objective to the project that isn't people-based. But we're using people to accomplish the project. And if we don't know how to use our most valuable resource well, we fail projects. And what do all of the stats show us? Depending on which organization's research you do, the worldwide, we as a profession fail on 50 to 70% of our projects. So I'm trying to get this focus through the show onto the how we solve that. Right? We can keep rowing upstream doing what we've always done. Or we bring on guests such as yourself and Bruce and others who have experiences here on the other skills to open up to our listeners and to our profession, there's probably a better way to be doing what we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting also is when you read a lot of the research that's out there about projects and why they're failing, so much of it is attributed to complexity. And then when you start digging up down as to what do we mean by complexity, 
a lot of it, yeah, is something to do with technology. Some of it's structural stuff. Some of it is because with project stuff is emerging all of the time. But time and again, the research also tells us this is around the people interactions. And I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it, the social and political complexity. And I think the wonderful thing about understanding how the brain works is one can begin to see how that arises and how our own behavior has an impact on it and can increase complexity. Or if we understand how to conduct ourselves a bit differently, and I don't mean changing personality, but really have more insight into what drives us and what drives our own behavior, we can make choices where perhaps previously we've been unable to do so, so that, in, that, we, so that we less often accidentally add to the frog and fan the flames of complexity, if you will. You know, and as we think complexity, I also think of the life cycle of a project. And Bruce, you had mentioned it earlier, right? We, we go through initiation, planning, executing, controlling, closing on these projects. And the complexity varies, right, as we go through them. How does the life cycle of a project fit into this discussion? To me, it seems like it's relevant here, right? In the sense of as we're as we're planning, the way we interact with people is completely different than when we're executing because the stresses of delivery are slightly more impactful than the stresses of planning. And how does the project manager react to a team member who may not execute according to the plan? Uh, good question. I'd say for me to be successful, I mean, by making the work visible and clearly monitoring it and effective communication or regular checkpoints with, with the respective individuals that are doing the work. Uh, you would assume that with a process that's defined that the individual, that if he's running, he or she, if she's running into issues that are preventing him or her from being able to execute, whether it's additional scope, uh, issues that they, items that they hadn't identified previously, the reality is, is that if they can't maintain their current schedule, that the expectation is that they immediately raise a red flag, contact and communicate, let us know that, hey, this has happened and this is my planned approach going forward. And if they don't have a planned approach, then at least saying, hey, here's the issue and we need to evaluate and identify next steps. All too often, if a manager is not, you know, maybe maybe managing too many projects um, and that effective communication from the individual isn't doesn't exist, then deliverables are missed, stresses continue to increase, and I think that snowballs into what we're describing here. So I, I think, again, the, the, the key to all of this is having the right people with the right skill sets, understanding what it is that you're looking to achieve, and all agreeing to follow the same standard set of norms for communication and execution all the way through to completion. Well, I think an important component of that, like you had mentioned, raise the red flag when a project's going south, right? Mm-hmm. Tying into Carol's point of they need to feel safe that it's okay to raise the red flag. Absolutely. Right? There's been yeah. many organizations we've gone to consult, and there's never a red project. And, mm-hmm. I'll, and I'll say, okay, you're the exception to every company in the world. How do you not have a red project? And they'll say, well, well we can't be red. Because my performance evaluation says if I'm red, I'm not doing a good job as a project manager and I don't get a raise next year. (laughs) But I think they also raised something really interesting there. So raising the red flag. And, of course, all of us will bring a completely different set of experiences. So what do we do if we have a hunt that maybe there should be a red flag there, but we don't think anyone else is going to agree with us? You should still bring it up. I think you have to. Uh, But that's just my military background in general. And sometimes I think I – 
especially coming fr- straight out of the military at first, I had the ma- mindset that I thought that everyone said what they were going to do and did what mm-hmm. they said they were going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in the same breath, had the fortitude that if something came forward, that they would not hide and suffer in silence. Um, yeah. That being said, that's just not human nature. And as I've grown as, as an IT leader, as an, as an organizational leader, you, you understand that everybody communicates communicates and interacts differently. So I think, Joe, you touched on it just a moment ago, just and making sure that that the team is comfortable enough to knowing that bringing up issues is not going to cause them to, you know, be the messenger that gets shot. I mean, what I've seen in in that scenario that I described previously is that socializing and making everyone understand that no project is ever perfect. There is always going to be some sort of an issue that comes to fruition in a project and that you need to understand that everyone needs to get in front of it, communicate effectively and work in concert to move past it. Not something that we should hide or feel ashamed of and sweep it and think that it's going to disappear because it's not. Yeah, I know. I'm absolutely with you. And I think there's something about so many organizations don't have that kind of culture. Agreed. Well, we were, Um, I was working with one of our resources today at a client site and the project was status report going out today was green. And I read all the indicators on there and that asked and said, are we sure we're green? And she said, well, I'm not sure how the customer will receive if we're not. And I said, well, this is time to level set and reset, right? Because we have to really let everybody know where we're at. Right. And it's, I think it ties back to that safety. I mean, my key takeaway for today is obviously great interaction with both of you, right? But it's the it's not my safety that I really need to be aware of, right? It's everybody's safety sure. we have to be aware of. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. Yeah, and when we're in leadership roles, it's about how do we cultivate that safety and recognizing what do I do when I don't quite feel safe about it? Where do I take it? So sometimes that's a bit of coaching that I often have to do with people on the, to, when I'm working on projects, really exploring where can you take this? How can we make it safe? How can you make it safe for people to say what's really going on? So that would be one area that's really interesting. I think there's another another bit, which is maybe we assume too often that our governance structures actually allow provide the safety for people to say what's really going on. I think there's many a project that's come a cropper because that's not the case. I completely agree, which is something that I wanted to touch on at some point is the the continuous improvement aspect of what it is that we do and repeating the same mistakes over and over again. We all know is the definition of insanity. So, I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of every project, there should be some level of evaluation, um, whether that's a post-mortem or project closure call, but at least an evaluation of what was completed, what was successful, and where can we improve, and then then redefining the process that you guys have used to execute. Making the same mistakes over and over again is, in my mind, should never happen. you gotta, you got to find a way to improve. Yeah, one of my favorite videos that uh, I've seen at a conference, uh, I talked about that at the beginning, was a debrief from a Blue Angels training flight. And Mm -hmm. at the end of their training flight, they all come in and they leave their rank at the door and uh, they talk through honestly and openly about what they could have done better, not about what their co-pilot could have done better, right? Everybody steps up and acknowledges their own areas for improvement. And out of that, 
they have precision flying, right? I mean, they're able to be 18 inches away from each other at those speeds mm-hmm. and in that hardware because they have that trust and, and safety within the team. And I think within projects, as we've seen them, we get to an end of a project, we do lessons learned or retrospectives, and it's it's like, a, oh, it's over, it's done. Put it into a file and never see it again, right? We don't really rely on that. It becomes more of a formality rather than a productive session. And I, I, I've seen both in some scenarios. And I think, it, like you were describing with the client, uh, that you know, the scenario that you yeah. described that... Uh, I think sometimes it's a, a scenario of where, you know, the, the emperor's new clothes that, you know, you just kind of don't want to uh, tell them that, you know, hey, you don't have any clothes on. And that's not the right right culture, the right mindset. So figuring out a way to get from, you know, away from that. And I think Carol's book is a good start in how to, to, to move into that direction, understanding how people, you know, tick and how you can interact with them and ultimately be more successful. You know, another takeaway for me today, and, and it's come up on prior shows, and it's really never resonated till today, Bruce, you were talking about all of this, is that in the military, everybody is trained the same way. It's one, You may be in different platoons or squads or whatever, but you're, you're getting the same sort of training and the excellence that's expected of, of you. But all of the organizations are completely different, and the type of training that the employees get is different. And we change from organization to organization so frequently that even if we did get that training, we can't use it with our coworkers because we or they aren't there. Mm-hmm. So how do we find the ability to to draw upon that military model of everybody's on the same page and working together versus the corporate America model? Or the corporate model will just say we're we just don't have longevity in a in a position to be able to to work together that way, right? I mean, it's a struggle, right? So for me, it's a take. I want to I want to figure out how to go solve that problem, um, <laughs> and I don't know how easy that is. I mean, Carol, the work that you've done to solve the problem that you've identified, I'm sure wasn't simplistic either, right? It, but uh, what a great output yeah. you had. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I think with that, it is recognizing that how we interact together and working on that is a key aspect of what we're delivering. You know, it's an internal deliverable. We have to get this sorted in order to be able to do the rest. Yeah, I mean, the military mindset is you've got my six. I'm not worried about what's behind me because you've got it. You have it covered. In the organizations today, that doesn't exist. I'm worried that you're actually going to shoot me in the back. Right. Well, absolutely. And so what I would say is at all different points in the projects, there's something about the people leading them thinking, how well are we understanding this interdependence? How well are we maintaining psychological safety? Because they're key evaluation points of progress. They're kind of KPIs, really, aren't they? Yeah. Well, surprisingly, uh, we are at the end of the hour. I mean, time flies when you're having fun, right? Carol and Bruce, obviously, thank you so much for being on the show today. It feels like we've kind of just scratched the surface of this, and I I can't wait to have this conversation continue at some point. But I want to give each of you an opportunity to let folks know how they can get in touch with you or uh, buy your book or if you have any events coming up that they can reach out. So. Carol, we'll, we'll turn it over okay, to you first. Okay, well, first event, I'm actually um, speaking to in the middle of the month. We're in October now, aren't we? Yes, in Dublin, at the Women in Project Ma- in Management in Dublin. So that will be fun. That's in Ireland. Um, I'm always up for people connecting with me on LinkedIn. And if you wish to, do tell me that you heard me here. 
because I like to know where people come from too. I'm always intrigued about how LinkedIn works. If you're interested in buying the book, you can find it on Amazon. If you just put in project and then uncertainty, and you may have to add neuroscience as well, but you may not, you'll find the book there. So yeah, those were three ways of keeping in touch with me. And I want to thank you really for this opportunity. It's been fantastic. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's been a great conversation. Excellent. And Joe, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, for those of you that like to connect to me, with me, uh, my name is Bruce Kilborn. Uh, last name spelled K-I-L-B-O-U-R-N. Uh, just uh, please reach out to me via LinkedIn. Um, and if you would, when you send out the message, just let me know that uh, you, you heard me on the show today. i uh, love to connect with anyone uh, that's out there that's listening to us right now. Um, meeting new people and helping out or possibly even soliciting information from you uh, to, to help me in my professional uh, advancement. So look forward to speaking with you on. Thank you so much, Joe, for your time today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for joining me here in the studio. Uh, and thank you, of course, to all our listeners. I believe we've now topped the 8 million mark uh, in the two years that we've been around. So it's uh, it's been an amazing journey and can't wait for the continued growth. Uh, and now our next show, right, because the wheels keep spinning, we keep going, will be October 17th. We're going to have Andrew Maynard and Laura Burford joining us. Really looking forward to a good discussion with them as well. And then a great lineup of guests. We are booked out through all of 2019 and actually into 2020 as well. Uh, we have Barbara Troutline, Rich Maltzman, Jim Stewart, Janelle Lee, Stacey Sellier, Lisa Libby, Lindsay Scott, and so many – Lindsay Scott from the UK. We're, we're continuing the trend there. Uh, and obviously so many more people coming up as well. And a reminder, right, all of these shows are live, but we do record them and release them as podcasts. So please be sure to subscribe to Project Management Office Hours on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Spotify, Spreaker, whatever your platform of choice will be. And, of course, thank you to our sponsors, the PMO Squad. Visit thepmosquad.com to learn more about the purpose-driven PMO and all of their project management services. So that's it for now. Office hours are closed. Until next time, I'm PMO Joe, and you've been listening to Project Management Office Hours. <music>